0: ARTBEAT CONVERSATIONS Beat Conversations.
1: My name is Courtney Leonard, Courtney Michelle Leonard, and I am Shinnecock from Long Island, New York. So I'm originally, I guess, family-wise from Long Island, uh, but my father's retired Air Force, so I've actually lived all over the world for the most part. And, uh, Whenever people would ask me where home was growing up, uh, that was home for me. So anytime we were stationed someplace, we would uh, we would always go home to visit family in Long Island. So uh, so yeah, so that's where I'm from. And uh, in terms of my work and my medium, I kind of uh, I kind of really took off into ceramics in uh, high school. Uh, got really involved in our ceramics uh, class, which we had. We were fortunate to have a pretty decent art program, and that's where I spent most of my time. And although I did a lot of different things growing up, uh, that's kind of where a lot of my energy got invested. And then uh, through school, I kept going with it, and in other things, I did you know, museum studies and whatnot, but I eventually got my masters with a focus in ceramics and I uh, I found though that you kind of have to return to that place of uh, knowing that you can pretty much do just about anything with whatever you have. I think um, what I found more recently is through academia I kind of became a little like linear focused in that but then uh, with going to grad school, I went to the Rhode Island School of Design. The program there was, uh, was pretty nice in the aspect that it allowed you to kind of explore your ideas through whatever means necessary, and, uh, and that's kind of where I feel I am right now. You, know, you never know what you're going to have access to, to be able to get the idea out. So right now even though I do also use uh, ceramics, I just pretty much make whatever I need to make and use what I need to use to do it. Did you go to a public school or private school and who was like the first person to turn you on to the possibility that art could be like a a real part of your life like was there a mentor and inspiration moment well for me for me I have to kind of go back to family because I was always making something ever since I was little and I was always encouraged by my family to keep making because I guess they knew that I enjoyed that so when I grew up um, One of my uh, great uncles, he would buy me those um, paint-by-number kits, you know, and then uh, Play-Doh. I would make these really, like, intricate sculptural, uh, my own fruit, you know, instead of going and buying the store, I would make it all and then I would play house or whatever. And then I I even carved my pencils, like, and so I, I was always doing those things and uh when i when i got into school my schooling was uh, we would move every two or three years so i go by uh my grades like where we were kind of and so uh in in high school well what happened was um eventually when we came back to the states that's kind of when um there was a starting point of a conversation about uh, drugs in high school with MTV and whatnot. Before all this reality crap came Mm -hmm. into play, when MTV really talked about issues, um, I was living in Philadelphia. And uh, before that, we were living in Pittsburgh, but at both Pittsburgh and our transition to Philadelphia, because my mom ran urban Indian centers, one in Pittsburgh and then eventually to Philly, uh, there were gun incidents at my school. So, uh, I was, you know, 12 and still kind of in the conversation of branching through playing with dolls to going to school with kids who were talking about putting holes in condoms and having sex at that age and uh, one of the kids on the bus uh, got bullied and uh, he finally brought a gun to school because of that bullying and then eventually onto the bus and then eventually um, shot through the window at the girl who was bullying her, him and um and so i knew that kid and then uh, my mom took me out of school we previous to that in like seventh grade where there was a gun incident also where the kid just brought the gun to school but nothing happened then we moved to philly and i'm in eighth grade and that gun incident happens where the kid shoots from the bus and i knew the kid and he was really he was a nice kid he was quiet and I was kind of ashamed because I also knew the girl, but I just didn't necessarily know um, how it would get to that point. And so my mom kind of had enough with it because eventually the school was going to have metal detectors and whatnot. And my mom was always educated, um, education-oriented in terms of importance. And she didn't feel that a kid should have to go to school and have to walk through a metal detector. So she mm-hmm. um, really, I remember that whole Transition in eighth grade of being taken out of school and going home and doing my own academics like homeschool wise and uh, waiting going to interviews at private schools and my mom finally got me into a private school and that's how I think um, I was able to have access to a really good arts program is because it was a private school it was an all girls school and it was really awesome because you went to school and you didn't have to worry about boys or what clothes you wore to be popular because we all had uniforms Mm -hmm. um and so uh I didn't like wearing a kilt but I you know I dealt with it and uh I eventually wore all sorts of stuff under my legs and I would get detentions for being like you have to be in uniform and so many uh demerits for being out of uniform because I would always push it with the pants underneath, or I would be in the studio, like in our ceramic studio, throwing on the wheel, and I'd be dirty, so you get a demerit for being too dirty, and the librarian, I remember her, she uh, she would always give them to me, and I, you know, my mom, I'd be late for school too, because I lived in the city, but I took the train out to the school that I went to, and uh, sometimes I wouldn't get up, I didn't want to get up, and you miss the train and you're late, like an hour, so then you get these demerits and detentions, and so many detentions is a Saturday. Well, the ceramic teacher um, was the one who oversaw the detention on Saturdays because she was loading the kiln. Oh. And uh, and so I was like, this is fine. I can just come in and do ceramics. It's interesting that you ask because I just got um, honored with an alumni award last year. And I told them, I said, you know, I never thought that I was uh, the you know the student that would be honored in my work that I've done since high school, but uh, if it wasn't for how strict this school was and the fact that I got detentions and was always in ceramics, I probably wouldn't be here today. So thank you <laughs> for the most. In all honesty I it was a transition to go from the schools I went to being a really good student getting A's and then going to this really rigorous school and uh, you know I got my first D and I was just like crying I was like I don't know what I'm you know I really wanted to be successful for my family yeah um, and at first I was gonna go into medicine I was doing these internships in high school and uh, at, at Temple University but uh, eventually I kept the arts I kept going with it and there was this sign in the hallway for a governor's school for the arts program where you had to turn in slides and do a portfolio and all that kind of stuff and I applied but I didn't tell my family because I had initially been telling my family and extended family that I was going to go be a doctor and I was going to go into science and I always kept doing art but I never thought about it in that kind of like art definition it was just a part of who I was since I was little and also a part of our culture too because we'd get together and you would make something you would bead or you know some of our families mm-hmm. would have like sewing circles and uh, and so it was just a, a part of life and uh, and so when I applied to that and tell my family because I wasn't sure how they were going to be about me doing that and Eventually, I had to tell them because I got to the final stage of the interview <laughs> process, and it was in uh, Harrisburg. You had to drive there to um, to go be accepted or and, and whatnot. And my mom, I told her, I said, I got into this, and you know, I need to go to Harrisburg. So can you drive me? And uh, we went there, and when she realized that out of like, I don't, I don't know how many students, if it was like. Six or th- six hundred or a thousand that applied within the state, only like um, two hundred or a hundred or so were accepted. Mm-hmm. But they were accept like um, ten students into music or like ten into theater, and they and it was a really great program that unfortunately doesn't it doesn't happen anymore. It got the funding got cut, mm-hmm. um, okay. but it was excellent because it was my junior into senior year. And I went to that, and because it was so difficult to get in, I really respected that I was there, you know, so I was busy in ceramics that whole summer, but we were intertwined with other artists. And so we hung out with the theatre people and the music people and um, painters and whatnot, and had some really excellent teachers. And uh, that's when I decided that I wanted to, in senior year, um, go for go for art programs and uh, I once I told my family that that's what I wanted to do um, that I uh, they were okay with it I knew that this was what I wanted to do and I think my mom knew I wanted to do this for a long time because I was always doing it so then it was just like kind of a breath of relief to be uh, like it's an okay sign of approval you're good to go and you can uh, apply so I applied to Since my mom ran the Urban Indian Center, I didn't know about the school that I applied to until I met an elder, uh, Linda Pula, she's Delaware, Uh, but she had come out to Philly because the Delaware um, are also from the area, Delaware, the state, (laughs) Um, but uh, they were doing a lot of kind of um, historical conversations at that time, so she had come out to visit the Indian Center I told her I was applying to schools and I was interested in art, and she said you should look up the Institute of American Indian Arts, and uh, and I said okay, and I remember that was ninety eight, and I remember that their website was like like just this blue page with print and a few pictures, <laughs> and uh, but the cool thing was they listed their programs, and you know they had indigenous languages and they had. Uh, textile and weaving and beadwork and all of these things and along with three-dimensional arts and two-dimensional arts and museum studies and I thought oh you know this might be a great place to also apply to so I applied uh, there uh, thinking it would be great to not be the only uh, indigenous person in my class because with growing up all over the world it was me and my brother for the most part and I have a younger sister but he and I are three four years apart so um, support system-wise, I had that for some schooling. And then uh, I thought it would be nice to kind of have that again where I didn't have to explain, like, do you hunt buffalo and live in a teepee when I'm from Long Island? So uh, <laughs> so I was like, uh, I said, that, you know, this might be nice. And I applied there at Alfred University because, um, uh, and I think Syracuse too, if I remember. And I got into all of them. But I chose IA because it was a two-year program, and I thought I'd go there and then apply, and maybe Alfred would still keep me. And uh, and so when I went out to IA, uh, that was interesting because I was a little naive in thinking that I wouldn't have the questions of, do you hunt buffalo or live in a teepee? But it turned into, um, and I remember this, it was one of, one of our crits, uh, in char's class, there is a Athabaskan man uh, and I had just talked about how our men were whalers up until late 1800s and uh, that this work that I had done was in regards to uh, some of them passing away and uh, and the guy and I was eighteen you know so the average age at i a is like twenty six think still uh, so I was going to school with older people and me just coming out of um, high school and so he's telling me how the we didn't hunt whales that they're whalers and uh and I said you know I stopped for a second and I just I said you know you're right those whales they only stay on one side of the ocean they don't they don't go anywhere else because it's just like reservations and borders they don't leave you know so you're you're right we don't have any whales in the Atlantic Ocean they're just in the Pacific and uh and I was, he just laughed. <laughs> and um, he looked at me, and I think he kind of realized that, you know, here's this young lady who um, who just kind of was really sarcastic. And ever since then, we were really good friends. And unfortunately, since then, he's, he's passed away. But um, but I remember that, because all of a sudden, we, we just like, we were bros or something. <laughs> It's good just knowing, you know, just knowing um, who you are um, is—it's just a really good feeling and being able to uh, have a conversation with people and kind of come from that place of knowing and sharing. I did a lot of uh, Raku. Cause I had done that previous I started that at that summer program I got into that and I wanted to get back into it and and it was uh, kind of the one area that we were allowed to somewhat control firing wise so um, so I was interested in kind of the full gamut of of doing work so I went for three-dimensional arts, and then when I was there, I still wasn't sure how my family was going to be. <laughs> and I had heard about the museum studies program, and I thought, I rem- Juanita Berry was my advisor. It's crazy remembering people's names, but <laughs> I remember sitting with her, and uh, I said, I'm going to double major, and um, the biggest issue was they didn't think that I could double major in two years, but I did, I took like 18 and 20 credits, and wow. um, I did the double major and uh, summer internship at the Smithsonian,
0: okay. and
1: um, that's how I did it. But Chuck Daly uh, was teaching museum studies, and he was like my second grandpa. And um, so I loved the fact that I did museum studies, but I chose it because I then called my family, and because uh, they were asking me what I was going to do with the rest of my life, you know. Doing art, and uh, and so I thought, well, I can weave these two things together: museum studies and art. And uh, and so I would share that with them. But I just love the museum studies program. I mean, it was um, it was pretty powerful uh, as a as a program where you're just hands on in the museum, doing exhibitions, hanging stuff. They made you feel uh, responsible. And also that you could, I mean, that was Chuck's idea is that anybody could make a museum um, from scratch. <laughs> like, wow, that's and, really uh, cool. and he, you know, instilled that. So at one point we, we actually, our museum studies group club went to Philly and helped at the Urban Indian Center my mom was at. Wow. Doing, um, kind of redoing the exhibit. And then while we were there, checking out the museums in Philly. But yeah, it's amazing how much can happen in two years. Uh, we lobbied for Congress for federal funding for wow. the schools, you know, because um, Bill Clinton uh, was was just in at the time. But there, it, you know, the funding changes now that I look back at it. Being a student that was able to go to Governor's School for the Arts and you know going to IA and trying to get more funding for tribal colleges and just realizing where we are right now, where a huge amount of my choices has brought me to a point where I am in uh, debt from going for my master's and wanting to do that so that I could uh, kind of give back and teach, because I, I love teaching, uh, but in this reality check of the timing. You know, my my family encouraged education because they, um, they thought that that was a means to... Um, no one could ever take your education from you, was one thing. And then the other thing was... Uh, that you would be able to, you know, do well. Um, But I'm coming to the realization now that doing well isn't just a linear manner. Like you have to be open to um, finding a way to make your own path that's a genuine path that's not been kind of figured out previous where you just get a job right out of um, getting your master's, uh, which was an accomplishment. And then people are asking me if I want to get my doctorate, but I'm just like... Uh, <laughs> Give me a minute. No. yeah. <laughs> like, I have a few things <laughs> I have to take care of, and... Uh, so let's talk about Alfred. So after yeah. I, I, you, did you have to reapply, or they just... Hard- I had to reapply. Alfred University has the New York College of Ceramics, uh, which was always on my list of conversation in high school. It's like, oh, that's Alfred, it's the best in the country for ceramics, and... I had wanted to, uh, go there. And even though I had all of this double major credit stuff, they wanted to put me in as a sophomore to experience a portion of their foundation program. But I kind of thought, uh, that that wasn't going to be the case because of finances. Like I couldn't afford an extra year of college. So I really, um, I think if anything, I just knew, I did my own research, instead of having an advisor tell you your path, I think you have to take responsibility and knowing how you can get it done. And I think when they see that, just like my mom, they're probably like, okay, I think this kid, you know, really knows that they could potentially do this. So again, at Alfred, I did a lot of credits, um, but I also took some summer credits and I was able to do it in two years. And that was a bit of a transition because I went from IA where I think a large amount of emphasis was on uh, your narrative, like who you are and how you're going to kind of share that with other people. I transitioned from IA where I spent, I don't know, three months making a pot or a couple of pieces or something like that to then taking um, uh, Linda Sikora's wheel throwing class where you had to make 50 pots in a week
0: wow. um, on
1: the wheel. And it was basically getting you to understand building off the cylinder forms, and so you broke it down to 10 pots in five days. So if you throw 10 pots a day in five days, you have 50 pots at the end of the week. And some of them had to have uh, certain elements like feet and uh, spout and handle, different things. So we got to that end crit at the end of the week, and all of us had brought our 50 pots into the center and we're all standing around and I just was like, wow, you know, I I did this. Um, and then I think she had us, I don't think we fired any of them. Like it was just the idea of being able to make and if you were going to be a production potter, that's the life that you have to think of in terms of how many you're gonna make a day wow. to reach your quota. <laughs> I don't know if it's a culture shock, but it was a shock of um, make it or break it, and you're around other people who are also at Alfred, um, who that energy, that kind of peer energy, feeds you to keep working. You know, when you're around other people who are working, you're, you're, you're not gonna go home and like sit on the couch and watch TV and read your book for whatever other classes you're taking, you're gonna make until you're kicked out, <laughs> Cause, Undergrads couldn't stay past midnight, I think, but um, but yeah, my other friend had uh, moved from IA with me there, and we shared an apartment off campus, and she would always want me to do things with her, and didn't quite understand because she was in the um, the BA program for arts education, and I was in the BFA program. Uh, she didn't understand why I wasn't coming home or like what I was, yeah. But we didn't have we didn't have a lot of time. We had a really kind of big intense assignments to get you to to go up and to know the material. Alfred was very technical. Alfred was known for their graduate program as well as you know the undergraduate program and I didn't necessarily know that my choice in going for undergrad somewhat hindered my possibility of going there for graduate school. They tend not to take undergraduates into their graduate program. And the reason being, I kind of understand it, is that uh, it's, it's somewhat nice to have an experience that isn't grounded in one way of seeing. So, uh, IA was two years. I went to Alfred and that was two years and then I took some time off, and then I went to RISD for two years, and I wonder if I would be as open as I am now to different ways of approaching teaching and learning and working with my process if I had stayed in one way of learning for uh, six years. about going home. I didn't know what to do next. I went out to uh, Flagstaff and I did an internship there and it was working with the uh, like Indian markets over the summer, their art market program, but as well as their kind of um, exhibition space that had sales. And uh, so it was kind of the four corner region of indigenous people in the Colorado Plateau. And you stayed in a refurbished chicken coop over the summer, which actually was really nice. But they used to be old chicken coops, but they just drywalled the inside. And that was your spot that you stayed. And they were kind of lined up as little um, uh, cabins. And sometimes if you woke up too early, the elk would be like right in front of you because they come down. And tons of prairie dogs and um, uh, the cabodes, uh they were also... Artists uh, there over the summer, so I, I got a chance to go over and talk to Fred Cabody, and uh, it was a nice experience. But initially, it was just to not go, I needed to keep doing something, and so uh, that experience was great because I met a lot of artists and uh, that I still see today. But it's interesting how when I come from these like beginning moments and then Keeping in my career that I wrap up into those circles again, but in a different way I was out there and it finished and I didn't want to go home still So I looked for work and I found a job at a gallery in Sedona which was really interesting because it was a uh, antique maps gallery and photography of Edward Curtis And so I uh, was the gallery director at the time, assistant gallery director, and then I became the gallery director, but I just stayed in Flagstaff for a couple of years afterwards. And then uh, the Edward Curtis thing was interesting because especially at IA, and eventually when I went to the Smithsonian, um, uh, the idea of what Curtis was, was always put into a negative realm for the most part. And then, but when I was there around the work, and because the uh, owner of the gallery was pretty decent in terms of respecting cultural uh relationships to some of the materials that he photographed, mm-hmm. um she kept the images that shouldn't be in public in the drawers oh, wow. and so um and you know we we were on the Hopi community, so they would come down and um the snake dance imagery in particular is not something that um should be shown, so Uh, It was interesting, though, to learn some of the positive things behind his work. Being able to see some of the images that they could see, uh, people would come in and say, oh, I haven't seen that in a while, or they would look at the clothing that, because he wasn't all about, like, just dressing people up and taking, I mean, he did do documentary photography, and that has held uh, certain, Amounts of uh, benefits for some people as well as being able to see like family members mm-hmm. that if um, you know He hadn't taken their image uh, They wouldn't have had that kind of seeing relationship of that past person So so that experience was kind of a growing experience for me because the it wasn't in a book it was actual physical photographers with the people and Understanding that relationship and then the maps were awesome because it made me realize that uh, school failed, <laughs> like really, really failed. Um, because I mean, right now I do a lot of curriculum development, and I was in, I was back home in the Hamptons, and uh, I was talking about how we could better develop the curriculum, integrating uh, maps as well as visual imagery, so that uh, the students have a connection and a relationship to. Um, an image with history, not just memorize this date and pass this test. And I was talking, and whatever I said, because I think I was in my early 20s at the time, the uh, Southampton School District um, had had asked me, just stopped weird weird in conversation, kind of like the Athabascan guy, and just said, "Um, uh, what is your background? And I said, "My." background do you want my educational background do you want my cultural background do you want my um, political background with which background (laughs) would you like and uh, she said well no I just I'm trying to understand where you're coming from with this you know knowledge I said well I worked at an antique map gallery as the director for four or five years and I realized in that moment in time that uh uh, that we failed. That all you have to show is the Louisiana Purchase, or the fact that Oregon like took up half of the Northwest Coast, or um, you know Baja California, California and um, you know Arizona, uh, nineteen twelve. And I mean, there's tons of things that just visually, if you see these things, uh, I wish I would have been introduced to that as a kid, because to see that Virginia was huge, and then now this is how we puzzle them into. The 50 state, you know, it's it, it doesn't allow students to realize the responsibility of learning, it's kind of being told, like, this is the only way that you can map the country, not understanding how the country was actually mapped. And uh, and so she, so that was like another at the basket moment where she was just <laughs> like, Oh, okay. <laughs> had just opened up a tribal museum and I thought this would be a great opportunity for me to go home and actually apply something, not just go home and wait for something to happen. Yeah. So, uh, so I applied and I uh, had reason to go back and I worked there for a little bit. Uh, and I was getting job offers for teaching uh, in ceramics for, for teaching. But I didn't have my MFA and mm. so I realized well I should get my MFA so that when these opportunities arise I, I don't have that p- piece of paper that's in the way. So I went to RISD and uh, my whole conversation to a certain degree out of, outside of a ceramic context with artists was an indigenous conversation about artists because I was really empowered with going to IA and knowing the alumni and all of that in Native American art history and contemporary art history with um, indigenous people. Then at Alfred, you learn about, you know, the current ceramic wave and past ceramic wave. Then you go to RISD, and I'm in a crit, my first crit, I think, when I was there. And there's not a lot of conversation as to how you're doing. You, you go into, you, you meet people, you relate to your ideas, and then you go into crit, and it's just kind of like, uh, what's going on here? I understand that this is happening and I've worked really hard for it. And then they leave and they move on to the next one. And so you don't have that kind of comfort pat on the back of, and here's your report, and this is what your, your success level reads right now. And there's none of that. Um, you have conversation and that's what you take. It's not this end result report card or something. So the conversation at the time of what I had just made was uh, – your work looks very Jasper Johns and I just was in the back of my head being like I have no fucking clue who Jasper Johns is but I'm gonna be like oh okay yeah yeah, I understand yeah um, my work is very Jasper Johns and I think that's all I remember from that crit and they left and as soon as they left I went on Google and I looked up Jasper Johns and I was like how do I not know who Jasper Johns is I mean that's pretty sad Courtney that even though they had no idea who Roxanne Swansel was or Tony Aveda or Fritz Scholder or um, TC Cannon, um, at the same rate, you didn't know who Jasper Johns was. So uh, I was determined to break out of this comfort conversation that I previously had. So I got into like Clement Greenberg and I got into all of this kind of Jasper Johns historical context and uh, and I did that to kind of enhance uh, my approach to, to conversation, not necessarily expect that somebody else was going to come to my understanding of conversation. Because no one told me how good I was doing or how horrible I was doing, we just had these conversations. I had a lot of times I cried home my first um, semester there, where I said to my mom, I said, I'm, I'm fucking up. Like, I'm not going to make this and it's a lot of money. and." Um, and I don't know what I'm doing, and I was really about ready to pack up, and I got towards the end of the semester, and I think I got all A's. I kept looking for other Indigenous people, like to, I kept looking for people who were gonna understand me, and come from a place of knowing to a certain degree that I didn't have to explain everything, you know? And, uh, And then I realized that it's a two year program I could go through each semester with success lur- looking for that, or I could realize that by doing that I'm not getting a full experience you know i'm maybe I'm passing up on somebody really cool just because they're not indigenous <laughs> like yeah. and uh, and that you know court, you need to kind of figure this out and um, and make it work and that's kind of what made me make the experience work was realizing that it's a a unique one of a kind experience and i'm going to fuck it up if i keep looking for a comfort zone and um and maybe my comfort zone isn't really all that comfortable if i just allow myself to open up so the idea of like something making or breaking it i think really comes to you like to knowing you to to having a personal understanding about maybe what it is that you do like what you repeat in life um why do you repeat it Right now, I mean, being out of school, I, I finished there in two thousand eight, and having this transition of like moving, because I we've been in New Mexico for for two and a half years. I gotta tell you, my move bug <laughs> has like really <laughs> been active. The thread, yeah. It's and like, I'm just, continue. and I'm like, because I am a mom now and and a wife, and I I realize I want to move. I really do want to move, but I also love it here. And at the same rate, um, my, this is my daughter, I thought I was gonna have a water baby and have a desert mountain baby. Uh, it's this idea of knowing that my responsibility isn't just me anymore in terms of that decision making. But I do realize it's kind of, why am I doing this? Why do I feel like I need to move right now? Um, why are we gonna pack up? And is the way that you grew up necessarily the way that you want your daughter to grow up also? Um, not to say that what we did was um, good or bad, that was my experience, I don't know if it needs to be hers, just because that's all I know, so I'm trying to get out of that, I'm trying, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I'm trying to be like, no, you you can be grounded, you can (laughs) keep your feet down in one spot, I would like to have a home, like the res, you know, it's like have a Uh, place that you go wherever you travel in the world that kind of sets you Um, but at the same rate I'm still gonna travel share my life in some sort of like um, spiritual context um, because I don't want that to be cheapened or be belittled. But I really feel like everything that I've done in life has maybe already to some degree been mapped, I guess. About two years ago, there was a international ceramic conference here in Santa Fe and I had um, previous to that, I'd gone to Santa Fe Community College, there was a talk on art, and it was with, it was trying to get high school students to get into um, the arts, and how do you do that with mentorship kind of conversation, and one of the uh, things that came up in the conversation was, is there such a thing as bad art, and everybody, you know, because it's high school students, <laughs> and they're trying to get them to go to college, and everything like that, they were very, uh, oh, there's no... It was getting to the point where no one said that there is such a thing as bad art, and um, and I got it was getting. I'm sitting in the seat, and I usually am relatively quiet. But if something is really eating at me, I'm just kind of oh no no no. So I <laughs> <laughs> so I I whatever I said because sometimes when I get in those moments, words come out of me, and I ne- not necessarily know what they all are. But uh, it was focused on the idea that, yes, there is bad art. And the idea of going and knowing about art is to be able to make that decision for yourself as to what is working and what isn't working. Now, whether you want that to be defined as good or bad, um, that's up to you. But um, there is n- not, not bad art. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so uh, in that moment, there was a gentleman in the audience who afterwards um, uh, had uh, touched base with me about what I had said and uh, and he was um, in ceramics field and he told me about uh, this conference that was coming up and I kept in touch with him and then I kind of volunteered behind the scenes and attended the conference. Uh, so the conference though was an international um, ceramics conference and it's very elite I guess. I mean, I don't know if "elite" is the right word, but it's private to a certain degree. You have to be voted in, and um, there's not that many Indigenous people in that group. Uh, but one of them is Magdalena Dundo, and Magdalena Dundo is uh, from England, uh, African artist who uh, I met when I was at RISD, mm-hmm. and she kind of is in that conversation of breaking out of your comfort zone. Um, we at RISD would have visiting artists and you could sign up to meet with different visiting artists. And there were a couple of visiting artists that I really just thought were were snotty, like really snobby and full of themselves and just making gimmick work. I won't say any names cause they're still out in the field and people <laughs> like them, but to a certain degree, it's a gimmick. And I remember saying to another peer uh, that I, I don't intend to have uh, a talk with that person because I don't really respect their work or the way that they were in the lecture. And, uh, and then when I said, well, I plan on meeting with Magdalena Adendo, uh they said, oh, you would, because that that's your type of thing. And I was just like, okay, um, but whatever. And so I realized, though, that not necessarily um, questioning the person, I would question myself. And so that's also one of the things that I started to do. Even though I might not like you, I can sit and have a conversation with you, so I did. So instead of denying some of the people that came in as visiting artists, I signed up for most of them and just tried to take what I could as, a, as an experience from that. So anyway, meeting with Magdalena and showing her the work I was working on at the time, uh, she invited me to England uh, to, um, she, teach at, she teaches at the um, Creative Arts Uh, University in Farnham and uh, and I went out there because she was also there was another international kind of gathering that she was doing and uh, and I went out there and I met uh, some really amazing people but that was when I was at at RISD so I hadn't seen her since then um, and I saw her at the ceramics conference and she said oh I have oh Courtney it's so good to see you she's such a beautiful woman and uh, she said I I want to introduce you to somebody So she introduced me to Manos Nathan. And Manos, I knew about Manos because when I was at IA doing Raku and trying to have some sort of inspiration, Manos was another indigenous person who at the time was doing Raku and kind of um, at the core of revitalization of ceramics within the Maori community. And I remembered that. So I was like, oh my gosh, I'm meeting Manos. This is cool. And so I sat down with him, and I talked to him, and I said, oh, I'm teaching at IA right now, writing about our course, and we just had a visiting artist, uh, Simon Kahn, who is uh, in town, and he said, Simon is here? And I said, yeah, and he said, oh, I've been trying to meet up with him, is there any way that you could, because his uh, international cell phone wasn't working, he says, is there any way that you could get us to meet, and, uh, and it was just, it was mappingly weird that, that connection led me to that connection that then afforded me the opportunity for them to connect again, uh, and because they really needed to. And then Mano started to share with me about, um, I don't know how whaling came up, but I was talking about that. And uh, he started to share about uh, the whaling with his community, but as well as his endeavors with the um, Cody trees. His brother and him have been working for the past like um, 15 years on revitalizing the forests uh, within uh, North Island, wow. and so they're growing um, Cody trees. And uh, so that was my first conversation with And He said, uh, "I'm planning on having an international indigenous artist gathering in a couple, you know, a couple years. Um, let me know if you're interested." And I said, "Okay." And uh, and eventually, um, I was able to. To get it happening, I did the uh, Kickstarter, like um, Indiegogo uh, campaign, and uh, friends helped and other people helped in terms of raising money to get to New Zealand. But it wasn't my first time I was invited. Um, I just it was the first time that I, I was getting closer to that two thousand dollar <laughs> ticket to get over there, which was really my only hindrance and uh and so i was getting all these emails of confirmation are you coming are you coming and i didn't know if i could come until really the very last minute um and my my first invitation was when i was um uh, 16 out on long island Uh, i was home and there was a conference or some sort of gathering at hofstra university and there were maori weavers that were there and i went and uh when i was there she showed me how to make flax and um, weave it and she gave me her card and she gave me a piece of flax and every, um, every studio I moved to I kept it and I would bring it out and um, I would always kind of tell myself you are going to get there someday. Eventually, I got there, and uh, my first day when I arrived in, um, in New Zealand, it's kind of a carry carry north, like um, Bay of Islands area, Nagapuhi, and uh, we were on the Mirai, and Manos greeted me, and uh, you know he said uh, he was so happy that I was able to make it, and uh, he wanted to give me something, and uh, long story short, he gifted me with um, uh, my first whale uh, tooth. Um, because he knew that even though we're also a whaling community, our history and the history of whaling within our community uh, is not necessarily the same conversation that they have. We don't necessarily have access to that um, material. And if we were to, I don't necessarily know personally if that's something that we should... Um, pursue or consider. It was just like, it was a solid moment. And I remember saying to him, I said, you know, I was invited here. I didn't know I was going to make it. I've been invited like 17 years ago. Uh, Do you know if this person is going to be here? I forgot her name, but I think it's like Ina Paulina. He said, no, I don't think I know um, a Paulina, but you never know because there's a lot of indigenous artists that are still coming through. So um, I didn't know the gamut of the importance of this seventh uh, indigenous uh, gathering, um, Kokiri Putahi. And uh, they had done it in Hawaii before. It's connected with the Longhouse up in Northwest. And so when I realized that there were a lot of artists who had been doing this in the gamut of their work, I mean, really career solid artists uh, to be invited as a ceramic artist, which in, um, in our group we're, I guess, the new term out that way is the Muddies, so we're called the Muddies. Um, but uh, to be invited I was like, you know, I'm getting straight to work. So I got straight to work and I had shared that with him. And then eventually you just kind of, we had a tent and we all slept in the um, house on mats. And you just got up and you worked and they fed us. And so you didn't have any need to go anywhere and just to be with the other artists. and. It was a really great experience. Um, So I would stay up, and a lot of us stayed up. Us us buddies, and because we were muddies, even though they were painters and stuff, uh, they don't have to have their stuff fired. You know, we had uh, two weeks, and we had to get as much work as we could done get done in that week, so it could dry, so we could fire it. So. eventually that Saturday we went to the Cody Forest and uh, we're looking at their trees that are like 3,000 years old and the importance of kind of the ecology of how everything lives with one another and for one another and so if they don't um, take care of that forest there won't be weavers there won't be you know there's no access to material because it's a loss of material and, and a detriment to you know the environment but also to the society and, uh, and so there was an older woman who was, she went to go gather the fruit or to show the fruit of the flax to someone else who was also visiting and to explain it. And when she went up to reach, I saw her ketty, her purse, and uh, her, her woven piece. And I was like, I know that work and so I didn't say anything just then because I didn't want to sound weird but the next morning I got an opportunity to go up to her and I said were you in Long Island 17 years ago and uh and she was like yeah I said um I said I don't know if you remember me but you sat down with me and you showed me how to do the flax and I couldn't remember your name but I saw your ketty uh yesterday when you were showing the fruit and I remembered your work because every studio I went to I kept that card and um, and I wanted I knew I was gonna make it here and I finally made it here and I just wanted to say thank you because that kind of knowing and wanting I think that energy kept me to get there I guess yeah and uh and it was awesome so uh so yeah it was her and she's she's like I remembered you and but we don't you know faces it's like seventeen years later <laughs> and uh, and so then by that point, I had already started making um Right now, I'm exploring the word breach, and uh, breach is a definition, like with English, it's, English is a second language to most indigenous cultures. Whether we use it as a primary language or however it's woven in, it, it remains a second language. And even within society, we kind of keep this word and use it in only one function, like education. We go and we only use it in one function because it becomes common. It's like a common repetitive thing, but when you break out of that repetition, you realize that in English, you have one word and multiple different definitions that you can approach to that word. So I've been, I've been exploring language in a connection to how we relate to that with starting a body of work. So when I had my daughter, I was doing two words, current and carrier. Um, carrier is in the vessel that I was exploring from our people, but also being a vessel. And current is in like water currents and energy currents because that was also with the um, spill in Louisiana. Something I was really concerned about. Like everything that went into my body was a part of her, and I never became that freaked out until I had my first <laughs> kid. Like, yeah, totally. and, and I I'm, and I I'm not the best person. I don't take care of myself, but when I had her. I was really like trying to understand where everything was coming from. And um, and so that was my first exploration of language. And now it's breach, uh, breaches and breaching the surface or breach of contract. And then when I think about contract or law, whose law? Because, you know, we followed uh, our own until we weren't able to whale because it was banned off of the coast of Long Island in the late 1800s. And then we've kind of, um, uh, understood our approach to that in a different manner you know kind of uh, uh, I always say tradition isn't stagnant like the water once you let it sit it kind of eats at itself you know and uh and so with breach that's kind of where I started and I have been researching it for a while different ways that I could approach it and Manos knew about that because I had talked to him in emails about wanting to kind of bridge that relationship culturally to our water ties. And, I, and that's also why he gifted me that um, tooth. And, uh, and so when I was there, I had already started making teeth. When I, I had a connecting flight in Fiji, and the, uh, the one image that stuck with me was the, um, I think it's wasiaka, the sperm whale um, tooth necklace that is just multiple teeth lined up. And, uh, and I was really struck by that image. I was like, if I could make some of those, I'd, I'd like to make that necklace, and, um, or the idea of it, because I'd, I'd always made larger teeth. I didn't think about repetition of small. So, uh, so that was what I made. So I made those out of porcelain. Um, it was local porcelain that we found um, in the area. And, uh, and I made those teeth. And then when I connected with Christina, which was my Ina, uh, the weaver, uh, she helped me learn how to bind them. So I had that connection again to when I was a teenager, learning how to use the flax and weave and bind. And uh, after everything was fired, because we did a lot of collaborations, you would make something and pass it on to another artist. So I made the teeth, but I passed it on to someone who actually carves... um, teeth, like and from the community really really powerfully well known uh, his wife saw what I was doing and she said you should ask him if uh, you guys could collaborate so he did some surface on some of the teeth that I had done that were larger and then the small ones um, I kind of housed to different people and fired them and then they all became gifts that before I left I gifted to people I collaborated with, wow. well, I gave one to Manos, I gave one to uh, Rangi, um, who had done, uh, who's the carver, and then uh, Christina, I gave her one, and she said uh, uh, we exchanged cards, and she said now I can have your card, mm-hmm. um, and that was really kind of like a a, a wow grounding moment of you know when I met her I was just starting out like in pursuing education and uh, teaching and whatnot, and to have um, to have been there with her and to have that moment—it just made me realize that I kind of came full circle. Mm-hmm. It was just something that I don't feel like I could really fully explain to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it really meant a lot, and so I gave her one of the teeth, and um, and then our last night when we were leaving, uh, we all came together, you know, as a community, and we shared our experiences, and we all all Indigenous people, you know, we love each other, we're gifting each other um, things that we had brought or things we had made, and that night I had two teeth left, and one of them I gave to um, Shinesi, who was a student, who I talked to my first night there. Um, because the students were the backbone of us being there. They weren't necessarily able to work with us, but they were the ones that fed us, and they were the ones that made sure we were, um, uh, you know, the showers were everything. They they worked their asses off, uh, and but they are important to me. You know, like, if I didn't have the people that I met that inspired me, it wouldn't have pushed me to keep going. Um, I gave uh, two of the teeth that I bound with Christina to Manos and his brother as kind of a... a Uh, a gift in return but also a connection to um, our whales you know the conversation that we're going to continue to have with those um, uh, with those markers and um, moments in life and uh, and then Shanisi I gave her one of the teeth um, because I wanted her to finish it you know um, it was one piece that was fired but it wasn't finished and so um, I told her, I said, you know, you take this, and whenever you feels right, uh, you put, you finish it the way that you see it. And so, you know, tears and whatnot. Uh, but I gave her that, and then I kept one that I I wanted to pass around the community because ceramics ke- keeps heat,
0: mm-hmm. and it
1: keeps memory. Um, and and uh, and so I passed one around. I said, this one's coming home with me, and uh, and it'll stay with my family. Um, and I just wanted you all to be a part of that. Um, so, that's um, so that's so that was my kind of like ending experience. But it's not been an ending because uh, it's kind of been like a midlife something. <laughs> like, I don't even know if I'm midlife because I'm 33. So I'd like to think that I'm gonna live longer Let it fall than 66.
0: To the Reaching for the stream all I wanna do is keep on reaching through, keep on reaching through
1: to the river I came back and I it was only two weeks, but so much happened that I um I didn't know what to do like I felt really culture shocked and I kind of felt like I lived my life like and um and I kind of felt like I'm a baby again I feel like all of these things have been mapped I guess and I'm mm. kind of connecting into them so when I got into this space because um, I had already uh, known that I was invited to be a local artist in residence at the museum here at okay. the um, Museum of Contemporary Native Art, I didn't necessarily know what I was going to do in the space until I experienced going to uh, Autora and uh, and then when I came back, I didn't know what I was going to do either. But I fed off that energy. Like I got into this vacant room, which was so weird because I was in a tent with tons of people making <laughs> stuff. To come into this secular space, I just like let go and I just started making and also when I was over there you only had two weeks to work I hadn't really been in that intense moment with clay of of process you know like how am I going to adapt to doing what I do with the material but quickly so I took that energy when I came back in here and I was with the goal that I wanted to make the lower jaw of the sperm whale there's um, 28 to 52 teeth in a sperm whale jaw and I just wanted to continue this conversation about breach, but also exploring an idea of, um, to a certain degree of sustainability, like material access, like, can you still culturally have a conversation or song or ceremony behind this if you don't have the material? You know, if can you go to powwow with no drum? Like, I mean, huh. I, I was interested in that because that's what's happening. Like, I'm from one Indigenous community, with that connection to whale, with another indigenous community where when I was there, a sperm whale washed ashore, or that there were 50 pilot whales that stranded themselves just before an earthquake that hit. And, uh, and so I really got into more research, like seismology, sounds within the water, how those might, we don't, we think we have an answer or we want to disregard answer, but it's just a same way of that kind of one way of learning without the map you know, without the visual. It's like science wants to say, oh, no, there's no correlation to this. Um, but how do you know? You know, I mean, and uh, and then there's also the unknown because the ocean is huge. I mean, it's like the depths are... Uh, there's one supposed, in my research, is a hybrid of an unknown sound. And they think it's a finback crossbreed between a finback and a humpback. Wow. And I kind of was thinking, well, I'm a crossbreed, you know, like I'm Shittacock, <laughs> but I'm also Irish and like... Um, and what is it like to be that new thing that carries a new sound? I have a lot of things that have woven into this work that I don't have one way of defining. And I think when making work, I, I've grown, maybe it's being older, but I feel like instead of having one piece speak for something that's beyond one definition, that I should just make things that are layered, you know, with conversation that can have an open approach. Like if I made a bunch of work that was really directly in your face, like fracking hardcore, um, I don't know how many people I could necessarily have a conversation with about that because some people are hesitant to talk about things that might be disturbing. So if I make like the piece that I'm working on right now, which for me is breaching the wall, like it'll go on the wall, but it's also that seismic energy, that earthquake shift or the weaving with the lines or the current that happens, or um, eventually I'll I'll be doing some piping, which does have a relationship to that, but visually is no different from Jasper Johns or something like that in terms of abstract expressionism, or just beauty, like, or how you define beauty or bad art or good art. Um, I think it's a conversation that is beyond me, and I think that's the biggest thing with what I'm making, is to just be kind of like present, you know and not be determined to have an understanding about everything we have seers from our community but i'm not i'm not a seer i just have dreams and it's important to acknowledge things. So, I had a dream where, uh, and I've had this before, where water where we're from turns to desert, and places where there weren't water opens up to water, and those have been some of my dreams that I've had. So, one of the dream I had um, when I did the painting that's downstairs, it was a whale, like, going through all of this filtering culture. Like, it was weird because Digitally, if I could do this artistically, all of these things were just kind of flowing in into its baleen and then just kind of being softened and filtered out and Uh, The way that I translated it, where it's um, like bleached whale bone, but the images of that whale that's in the, like any history museum, natural history museum, has some sort of whale hanging from it. So (laughs) when you walk underneath it, you look up and you're underneath kind of usually the jaw when you have that established presence of, like, this thing is huge. And uh, and that's the imagery that's downstairs, but the bleached part comes from Um, kind of my... When you're in a community and there's a lot of whales, eventually there's whale bones, like a graveyard, because everything's used, you know? And um, the only thing that's left is the bones. And then they get bleached by the sun. And so that was, like, another aspect. And then uh, I just did these lines, these vertical lines, and those are symbolic of the baleen. So, I mean, I could... Just like a pot, you know, um, everything is kind of a conduit, an activation for that oral conversation, that story, that history that we share, but with my work, I don't have to have all of that be a part of it, you know, because sometimes if I let it just be subtle moments, those mapping points of that dream that was for me, it opens up conversation of what other people see. I just went to the student success thing and I, one of the questions was if you could do it all over again would you you know choose the same path and um, that was right after I got a phone call about my student loans <laughs> so, um, so I don't you know in that moment I, I thought about being a doctor you know if I had gone in high school and I had kept that path of doing the internships and going into medicine and my fear at the time was being under neon lights, like because I mean it, we had beepers, and the people I would follow, uh, the doctors I would follow around for that internship were always on their beeper, and they were always under neon lights, and I thought, is this really like the life that I wanted to have? Um, and that's kind of what really pushed me to decide. I think it's important to have some sort of experience where you have a little bit of knowledge as to what you're getting yourself into. And I don't think we do enough world experience in education, like internships or just when I went overseas to England, there were 16 year olds and 15 year olds on the train traveling through the country and the world. And when I was on um, the plane to New Zealand, I was actually sitting by missionaries, but they were young missionaries. Um, going to Fiji and it just made me realize that uh, you don't know what you want until you understand what the possibilities are. So I think if anything um, in terms of encouragement it's just to get to get out and to experience life beyond your neon lights or your beeper um, and to realize what happens when that you know is a part of your life is, is that what's working and it can work it's just not necessarily the path that was for me, um, but the path that I chose is not easy, I don't, um, you know, I'm, I'm at this point where I have to figure out what's going to happen next, and I would love to teach full-time, I really would, so I think I'm, right now, I'm open to what's going to happen next. Um, I think if I just make things without knowing, it'll lead me, um, but I think you also have to have a, a certain amount of responsibility to acknowledge when something's happening and to make those choices. And I think um, that just is paying attention to sometimes the little tiniest little mappers, pinpoints that happen in your life is just to be aware. And um, and I don't know how someone becomes aware. I think it's it's everyone, you know, to each his own, how you develop your own awareness. But I think if you kind of, um, you know, if you zone out and you're, you're under the neon lights and you're following the beeper, then I don't think you're necessarily um, acknowledging possibility people need to pay attention you know um earthquakes earth shifts all of that things that we do uh whether we want to toss it to somebody else we do it you know there's fracking for a reason there's um uh, uh, seismology shifts naturally for a reason but there's other things that are occurring in that relationship to progress and like activating and acknowledging is um you know having that present moment of deciding what you are you going to do and how are you going to talk about it and why is it important to talk about and uh, I also think about my daughter you know like those memories that I had growing up um, might not be her memories and that's fine like she could have different memories but I also think that If something lasted so long, like a Cody tree for 3,000 years, who are we to fuck it up overnight, you know? (laughs) I mean, like, um, seriously, and by doing that, what indigenous knowledge are we losing? What medicine, what connection to human and self is already there that could be, you know, um, done in a good way? Uh, It's just a lot of things just aren't really you know, we make the problems and then we make the problems to fix the problems that are really the problems. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So, But to end on positivity, I don't know. Um, positivity is that I'm alive, you know, that I do have a daughter and she's beautiful and she's healthy and, uh, and that I felt when I was there that she'll be there too. Like, I was like, I'm not, this isn't gonna be my last time in New Zealand. For some reason, I know I'm supposed to be here, and for some reason, I know my daughter's supposed to be here in the future. And so, I really feel like um, that there is a future, you know, that, um, that, that something's gonna happen, and it is gonna be um, ultimately good, you know, and however you want to define good or bad, <laughs> but like, ultimately, it is supposed to be how it's supposed to be. had a really crap day really really horrible time in my life really bad experience in my life and I was home and I used to go to the water all the time back home to pray and just to have my conversation with like dear creator god whoever you want to call whoever um why is it happening to me I feel like I've been doing you know good all of those kind of conversations I'm sure we all have well I walked to the shore and I got to this rock where I sat to have this conversation and just cry and um, when I looked up, when I finally opened my eyes, because they were so filled with tears, like when I finally opened my eyes and I looked up, I saw a seagull. And it was just like flying, and then it dropped something from its mouth. And I was like, I didn't know what to think about it, so I paid attention. And he dove down, got back up, dropped it again. Dove down, got back up, dropped it again. And, uh, and I said, I'm going to go, you know, I'm still in this thought, but let me walk to see where, what he's dropping. So I walked back and it was um, our quahog, our clamshells, um, he was clamming. So, <laughs> I, so he would dive in, grab a clam, bring it up high enough to crack it on the rocks. And I had just passed that whole path of broken, purple and white quahog beauty. It's like our diamonds, you know, and they were all crushed along the path that I had just walked in my misery and... When I realized in that moment that even though, like, things had horrible things happened in my life, the seagull just showed me that everything that I need is right in front of me. Mm -hmm. Like, and you know, the water, food, it's all right there. And if I don't open my eyes to pay attention, I'll walk right by it. But that was probably the biggest gift that that seagull has ever, you know, given me. It's that kind of story, that knowledge that you just have to kind of pay attention to.